Disrupting Japan, Episode 66. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from the CEOs breaking into Japan. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Stripe is one of the largest credit card payment processing companies in the world, and their Japan market entry did not go according to plan. It went well, mind you, but it just did not go according to plan. Stripe was agile enough to take the changes and surprises in stride. Today, we sit down with Daniel Heffernan, the Japan head of Stripe, and he walks us through the process where one of the most technically sophisticated and streamlined fintech companies in the world came face to face with the very low tech and manual nature of fintech in Japan, and he explains how they made it all work. From detailed, extensive technical specifications that were delivered as uncopyable printed documents in three ring binders, to the Japanese aversion to integrating directly with banks and financial institutions, to trying to support some of Japan's more unique payment methods, and some of the surprises they discovered once they began work. Stripe's entry into the Japanese market is both an essential case study. For any fintech company looking at Japan, and an entertaining story for those of us with an interest in business in Japan. But you know, Daniel tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsor and get right to the interview. If you're a startup thinking about Japan, you'll never really understand the opportunities here until you start to take a serious look at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Osaka, in particular, deserves your attention, and this is especially true if you and your team are involved in smart cities technologies. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 project is Osaka's startup central, and it's a great place for you to get started. They offer co-working space, bilingual business support, venture investment, and they're at the center of a great international startup and mentor community. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 in Osaka really deserves your attention. So pay him a visit at www.gvh-5.com/en. You'll be glad you did. I'm sitting here with Daniel Heffernan of Stripe, and we're going to talk about Stripe's market entry into Japan. And you guys have just officially launched recently, but、uh, let's back it up and talk about when you first came in. Sure. What was Stripe's main motivation of coming into Japan in the first place? Well, when we started looking at Japan,、um, we looked at it kind of like we do every other market that we consider.、Uh, there are a few things that we look at when we're trying to decide whether to go into a market. One of them is the size of the e-commerce economy.、Um, Japan is pretty big.、Uh, last year it was 13.8 billion, so about 130 billion dollars, which is significant. That's actually number four in the world. Okay. Um, so you have China and the US are kind of giants at the top, then it's kind of a big jump down, and you have the UK. And Japan is actually just kind of behind the UK. If you think about it from like a population point of view, it's really weird because the population of the UK is like half of Japan. Yeah, I, I find that surprising from both a population and from an economy point of view. Right. Now, if you think about how, like, why that is, it's because of the number of online transactions that are happening online or aren't. So in Japan, it's、uh, I think it was four point seven percent of all transactions are online, okay, which is really small. Like as you know, someone who uses the internet every day, four point seven percent feels like tiny. Yeah. So what what is a comparable number in in the U.S. for example? The U.S. is actually pretty much in line, but if you look at the U.K., it's jumping over ten percent. Oh.、Um, it's up around fourteen percent. So in the U.K., lots of transactions are happening online, even though the absolute number or the absolute value of commerce is smaller. So there is this sort of gap、uh, between Japan and the UK on how much is happening online, and there's an even bigger gap within, I think, this generation of like our expectation of how much transactions should be happening online and what what it actually is. So Japan is still very much a a cash based society.、Um, yeah, it's it's cash based. It's it's offline. It's not like happening. People aren't buying things on the internet. I mean, this, these numbers do include cash on delivery and things like that. So it's、mm. it's transactions which are like happening. You know, in the supermarkets instead of through like online, you know, shopping platforms、oh, and things, right? Okay. So I take it Japan was not Stripe's first overseas market. No. So we look at the、uh, the you know amount of e-commerce that's happening online is one thing, and it's like number four. So it's like, why isn't it the fourth market you're in? 
If you look at China, which is way up there at the top, it's not a market we've been into yet. So another important thing we look at is complexity. Mm. And Japan is relatively complex. Um, if it wasn't, I don't think you would have this podcast. Uh, there wouldn't be enough to, to talk about. But I think there's plenty to think about when you're talking about uh, when you're thinking about trying to get into Japan, and uh, that's because of all this complexity. Okay. Um, so China is incredibly complex, and Japan is pretty complex. All right. So when you first came into the market, Stripe ran in stealth here for a good a good year, year and a half or so. Yeah, we we first got moving on Japan probably around January 2014. That was before I was on the scene even, but we had identified SMCC Mitsubishi Sumitomo Card as a partner. We knew we were going to kind of make it happen. We had started kind of opening the the, the box and looking at what the technical integration might look like, what sort of the, the the deal would look like, what kind of agreement it is. But we hadn't started executing on anything. So when I joined, which was uh, April 2014, uh, three months in, the first thing to do was sort of figure out this contract and then make a local entity so that we could sign the contract right, right. and. Then we had a whole bunch of local sort of vendors who we would have to work with on things like data centers and uh, things like credit card authorization switching networks. You finally officially launched in September 2016, was it? October. October 4th. October 4th, 2016. So just over a month. So in that two and a half years, was that the expectation going in or what took so long? So Japan actually wasn't a, a long time for us. Uh, we have other markets where we've been in beta for longer. I think we approach new markets as engineers. Mm-hmm. So whenever we come into a new market, and this was, uh, I think, true in Japan as well, we are working towards the launch, and our partners are saying to us, when is the launch? When's all the PR going to happen? When are you going to do the big reveal? When's the launch party? And for us, that's not something that we're thinking about on day one. The first thing we should think about is getting to first charge. So the first live payment transacted in the local country. So it's sort of a, a step-by-step process. We, okay. we get to first charge, we bring in the first user, we run a private beta, um, which is invite only, and we pick who comes into that. After that, we sort of move towards a public beta where anyone can sign up. And for that, we need to be a bit more confident about uh, the stability of the system, about our sort of risk and underwriting and uh, KYC, know your customers, sort of ID verification plots. Once we have everything in place, we're confident of the market, product market fit, then we move towards launch. So it's a, a very careful step-by-step deploy. It's not just like doing this huge fork in your code, having this enormous branch, and then just like hitting deploy and praying that it'll work. Okay. Payments are particularly local. Every single market seems to have its own set of payment processing companies. And when you came into Japan, were there specific regulatory licenses you need to you needed to get and how did you go about that on the regulatory side there's actually no specific regulation yet which covers credit card payment processors and there is regulation coming um, and it's something where we're sort of chatting with the ministry of economy trade and industry making sure we're in the loop there and we can kind of see these things coming and but it's interesting that you talk about payment methods when we started working on japan i think top of our list were things like Kombini to the convenience store payments where right. you when you're buying something online you say you want to pay through convenience store they give you a number or they give you a piece of paper to print out and you go to the convenience store and you key it into the kiosk or you scan the, the, the barcode and then you give them cash and then the convenience store will tell the online seller that the cash has been accepted this is one payment method. JCB is a, is a, a large Japanese credit card brand um, it's uh, not the largest in Japan anymore these days, but it's still significant. And we were looking at these as sort of critical payment methods which we needed to have. Um, we launched without them. And what we realized while we were verifying that our, our product market fit was strong was that these payment methods are critical for the businesses which already exist. Mm. Uh, I mentioned that number, about $130 billion a year of e-commerce in Japan. That is obviously generated by companies who already exist. Right. And I think this gap between the like 4.7% and like our expectation of, I don't like for me, it's like, I, don't know, I think somewhere between 20 and 60% of transactions should be happening online. <laughs> like this is not going to be from like these offline old companies coming online. Um, and it's not going to be from the existing online companies, you know, growing incredibly fast, or at least not all of it is. Those will contribute, but we think it's going to be very small 
companies who are going to become very big companies who are going to be generating this. So we're looking for fast-moving companies who are looking at new business models, who are looking at targeting new types of customers, and who are looking to give new payment experiences to users. Your initial plan was to support, um, let's call them alternative payment methods, like convenience store. And, and Did you end up supporting that? No. So yes, we, we did intend on doing that, and I know we didn't end up supporting it. If you look at the old existing pay companies so regarding you know, basic e-commerce online, it's about number of payment methods. They have a screen full of like, options that you can click on. And if you're targeting those companies, uh, you need to support all of those or else they'll be leaving some portion sure. of volume behind. Um, if you're looking at these fast-growing companies, they're generally not looking at the same business model or the same audience. We see companies who are platforms, for example. There are companies on Stripe, uh, for example, in Japan, uh, Dricom, um, which you know, is a big gaming company which is diversifying. They've started focusing on sharing economy, so was the decision not to support these alternative payment methods, was that based on a feeling that the market is moving away from them? Or was it based on kind of a cost performance analysis where there wasn't that much demand for them? It's based on the idea that the businesses which are going to be generating the future e-commerce volume in Japan are not going to be relying on these older payment methods. Okay. Uh, these companies need support for you know, their platforms. They need payouts, they need ID verification, it's a more complex payment cycle, or they want to sell abroad, they need to be able to have multi-currency presentment, they need to be able to have FX facilities. These are not things which come as standard uh, in Japan, but okay. the next generation wants these. Once you got on the ground in Japan, what convinced you that that was the case? So when I started, um, or when, you know, when we all came on board to Japan, we didn't have customers. At first, we started off with, you know, the idea of a partner. We kind of knew who the partner was. We had to build, it all, build out that relationship, that contract, the technical backend, get up you know, and processing. And we weren't dealing with customers. But we got our first customer on board when we started our private beta in May last year. Once we started getting customers on board, um, initially we only supported Visa and MasterCard. Then customer by customer, we started to learn about what it is that people want to do. One of our earliest users was actually a crowdfunding platform for uh, record printing, old vinyl records. And it's a very complex business model, but this is one of our first users. And they have this you know, pay in and there's a payout and there's you know, project owners and project backers and they need to hold the funds for a certain amount of time. And after you've raised enough you know, orders to fund your batch of pressing, right. then you can order, they want to order you know, more stock, which they use to sell separately. and. It's, it's a very complex business, and this was like one of the first users. So we very quickly sort of understood that these are global businesses, that these are sort of platform businesses who, first of all, are drawn to us, um, because this is sort of you know, what we've seen as a trend abroad and which we've catered to. And second of all, we, we feel confident, or at least we are betting that globalization is going to happen, that you know, it's going to be companies which are cross-border, which are you know, real global platforms who are in the future of e-commerce, uh, not inward-looking domestic simple e-commerce. So the original market was to support everything, and you obviously trimmed that way back. So were there any specific features or specific changes you had to make to the product to make it work in Japan, other than the obvious integrations? There are a bunch of small things we have to do. For example, statement descriptors in Japan, shown in Japanese. They're shown in kanji or kana. The credit card issuer decides which one is displayed. Mm -hmm. So we have to modify our API to be able to accept kanji and kana and English. So there's a lot of like, really small, like nitty-gritty uh, okay. changes which we had to make, but our general approach is not to fork Stripe in each country, mm. but we try to make a global platform which works excellently in every other market. So when we identify specific uniquenesses in, in markets that we need to support, if they're important enough, we try to make those something which is fed back into the global product. That sounds like, from an engineering point of view, it was a pretty, a pretty smooth path. What was your fundamental go-to-market? How did you acquire your initial beta customers? Well, we're, we're very fortunate to have a very long waiting list uh, of users uh, in every country that we go into. If you go to stripe.com global, uh, which is the page where we direct people when we don't support their country, 
uh, we allow you to sign up and provide us with your email address. Were your original core users mostly foreign-owned companies or were they Japanese? I would say initially probably half and half. Okay. And gradually that's become much more focused on Japanese companies. As your presence here has become more, exactly. more known. Exactly. Okay. That's a great thing to have when coming into the market. For the first two years, you were running in, in not stealth mode, you were running in beta. So you weren't aggressively trying to market yourselves and expand your business. But what were you doing other than the engineering? How big was the team? Or was it simply engineering for those two years? The first year was engineering. The first year was, I would say, maybe half engineering and then half sort of a partner legal type work getting agreements in place to support the engineering. In Japan, even to get access to technical specifications, you'll often need to sign documents and have agreements in place. Mm. They will be paper uh, specifications, which you get in a big binder, each one of them watermarked. So there's a lot of kind of groundwork that you have to do before you can even get to the engineering work. So that was a big part of it. And, and this was just the work to integrate with... First Jack. charge, this is to, to get the first charge. Okay. Yeah. Specifically, like what types of integrations were giving you these, these <laughs> big paper references? Um, well, there's uh, a couple parts that we have to build out always. Uh, one is the pay-in. So mm -hmm. there's the actual credit card processing. Um, in Japan, there are two large credit card authorization switching networks. In a lot of countries, you can go directly to Visa or MasterCard, or you can go directly to a bank and they'll set you up. But in Japan, there's this sort of central switching idea. CAFIS uh, is one which, which we operate on, and uh, there's a, a big spec that comes with that. And then we also plug directly into banks for the payout part. So when we're sending transfers to our users, uh, we need to connect to a bank programmatically. And that's the, the Zengin network? That's the Zengin network, exactly. So it took, I mean, it took a year of, of integration and reading often incorrect Japanese specifications to get to first charge. Yes. Um, and we've spoken to lots of uh, companies, especially, I think, foreign companies entering Japan who've done similar integrations before. I think a, a key part of our value proposition is that we can come in and we can spend the year doing this so you can get it done in like a week or two. <laughs> we, it's all behind the same API that everyone else uses. If you've used the API in the US, you may want to add a couple of parameters for the kanji and kana statement descriptors, but that's pretty much it. The, the thing will work as it's worked for you so far. I would say that sparing users from integrating with Kafis and Zengin is, is that's quite a selling point. <laughs> okay, so how big was the team there? Was the bulk of the engineering work done by the engineering team in here in Japan or was it done back at headquarters? So we have our ops team which does these sort of integrations back in San Francisco. There's a great team and because we have a lot of different integrations in different countries they're able to review each other's code, they're able to compare notes, they're able to share knowledge so we've decided very explicitly to focus on having the team who builds these technical integrations in one place. So the hiring locally was primarily based on our support team, um, initially starting with a support manager. And the second sort of pillar that we started to build, which was much later, uh, was the growth team, which was an anticipation of launch. During the first year, just as we launched our private beta, we got our, or our support manager in place and she started learning about how to translate Stripe into Japanese, how to communicate with customers. I was winging it myself in uh, sometimes English, sometimes Japanese with our users until that point. But then we had a person who really understood Japanese and who knew what she was doing. And then just as we were getting to our full launch this year, we got our, our growth lead in place to sort of look after any sort of inquiry or any sort of sales leads that we get. So these are two pillars we'll be building the, the business on. If the development was being done at, in the States and all of the specifications are in Japanese, mm. how, that must have caused some kind of frictions. Yes, fortunately, I have a bit of a technical background, so I was able to do some basic sort of back and forth there. Um, I didn't have too much trouble reviewing code or making sure that sort of code would line up with the specifications that we had. But the first step is always get it translated. We, we, we would translate the entire thing. Um, the translation would not be of perfect quality. Um, it's also difficult to um, make sure that the terminology is perfectly right. consistent. 
but we were able to get translations of the primary specifications that we had to work against. I would sit down with the engineers first and sort of walk them through the general overview based on my understanding of having read you know, the, the start of the, the specifications in both languages. Um, they would just go at it then and uh, I would be able to jump in and sort of uh, make sure that anything that I was concerned about from the Japanese kind of was translating across into the implementation correctly. So for that first year, you were very much part of the engineering team. Uh, I wasn't writing very much code, but I was working every day with the, the engineers. And uh, the certification was when it got interesting. Um, so before you can go live, as you know, uh, you have to go past the certification process um, on any of these systems. And uh, that generally, I had Skype open on my computer to the engineer in San Francisco. Right. And I had the partner on the phone. And I was having you know, both of these going at the same time. And the partner would say, OK, run tests one through four. I would say it in English to put the engineer over Skype. They would run tests one through four. I would ask if they received the test. They would tell me that they worked or didn't. And we would kind of go through this process. So after you got to your, your first charge, what happens then? Are you, you ran in beta for about a year and a half. So what, what, were you, what was your focus then? During the private beta? During the private beta. Well, there were a lot of things which were missing and um, which we had to build out. So, for example, the, the site was in English until just before our launch. Uh, so there was a lot of work in, in getting the site into Japanese and getting the code base in a place where it would be able to swap out strings at all initially, uh, since Japanese was our first uh, major translation. Oh, it was? Yeah. So we did France. Okay. France and Japan came along where our launches were aligned quite closely. So Japan was sort of the, the first use case we had in, in, in mind. And then we were able to get France along with Japan. I think we actually launched France a couple of weeks earlier than Japan. But uh, Japan was the initial driver of our sort of need for site localization. Okay. So during the beta, you were obviously fixing bugs, filling out the new requirements, but also ramping up support and marketing. Uh, support primarily, yeah. A lot of time spent recruiting. A lot of time spent working with potential users, potential partners, people writing into us. Initially, all types of people were writing into us. We had a lot of people who were waiting for Stripe. So we had some people who had gone to the US, Japanese companies whose CEO had gone on a plane to the US years before because they wanted to use Stripe, had set up a US entity, uh, had gotten a bank account in the US over a few weeks and then had set up a, uh, an account and they just wanted to, to learn more. Well, that's a, that's a dedicated customer, isn't yeah. it? We were very lucky to have a, a, a solid handful of users who have actually done that. Yeah. How big was your private beta? Um, there's no numbers that we make public on the size of our betas, but I believe at, at the end of the beta, we had thousands of people signed up. Um, not everyone was transacting every day, uh, but we had thousands of, of, okay. of people who were like in the waiting list and who set up accounts. All right. So now that you've launched officially, you're obviously not going to be relying on the global brand and the English language advertising. So how are you going to be driving demand going forward? That's a great question. I think all of the assumptions that we have about sort of how this works in new markets basically don't apply to Japan. Um, one thing that we, I think we're going to double down on very early in Japan, and we've actually just started hiring for this, is a comms role, um, which we don't typically put into a market uh, so early. But in Japan, I think brand is a very important driver of growth. Mm -hmm. I think the perception of a company very directly affects uh, how well you can grow. People want to work with companies they can trust. That trust is driven by brand and driven by the perception that everyone is using this new service or this product. It, it has to have that mix of feeling new and innovative and exciting, but at the same time, it has to be perceived as something which is a major thing, which everyone is using. And if it's too new and out there, then people will not feel comfortable using it. Or It'll feel risky. It'll feel risky. Risky. Risk aversion is a great topic. So all of your users to this point and going forward have been acquired directly by Stripe. You're not using a channel strategy at all. That's right. Uh, in every market we've gone into, we've done direct sales. We 
obviously do have a lot of discussions with potential partners and there are some relationships where we have large platforms using Stripe which are so large that you could perceive them as, as being uh, channel sales. And we, we, should, we power Shopify payments, for example, but it's, it's very different from, like you wouldn't go to a, a payment service provider and have them resell Stripe and go around with our marketing material right. kind of thing, which is a very easy thing to do with uh, software. But with payments, it's, it's a little bit different because I think if you were selling software, you usually have a very large margin and you can say, okay, we'll give away, you know, however many tens of percent or whatever of this margin for someone who can get us sales. With payments, it's a very small margin, plus the usual incentive that you have is a percentage of that margin. And that percentage is usually measured as a percentage of the entire volume. So you would say, you know, we'll give you, you know, 0.1% or 0.2% of the absolute value. But if a user is getting very big, their absolute volume is becoming very large. They're negotiating their rates. The rates are coming down. Uh. And to maintain this sort of zero point whatever percent to the reseller is a huge burden for us. And for the reseller, it can feel quite small as well. Okay. Um, so it's, even though we are selling software, I think when it comes to payments, which is a very low margin business, it introduces a lot of complexity in, into how you can get a, a reseller the program up and running and successful. Yeah, I could see how I, yeah, just the economics of the, the industry don't allow for a lot of partnerships and distributor sales. We, we, we do work with a lot of uh, dev shops. In Japan, you have the system integrators, the SIers. Sure. Japan is an interesting country from the point of view that a lot of businesses don't have their own in-house uh, engineering teams. Uh, they'll rely on these outsourced system integrators. A lot of the time, the decision-making around what kind of tooling or what kind of systems are used are, is actually coming from the system integrators as opposed to coming from you know, the, the actual businesses themselves. Yeah, people are shocked how shallow in-house IT knowledge is here. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time it's literally an IT department with you know, a person who will draw up some requirements, throw it to a few vendors who may throw it to some you know, more subcontractors. There's, there's not actually much engineering work going on at all in the company. So, in that case, I think it's important for us um, to talk to the business and understand their own requirements directly as well, but to also work with the system integrators so that they understand um, what the value proposition of Stripe is, how it can help any of their clients. So is, are the systems integrators driving uh, a lot of your sales in Japan now? Not a lot of our sales, but I think we see it as a very interesting way of growing. You know, it's actually a separate discussion to a reseller model. You don't actually have to see it as channel sales because what we've seen globally and in Japan with a lot of the, the companies we work with so far is that it's actually a, a clear win-win. They're getting better technology. They're, they have tooling available which their competitors don't have. The integration time is quicker. The quality of support that we give them is potentially higher than what they get from, from other companies. So even though there is maybe not a direct sort of financial incentive, a kickback of some description, there are a lot of other incentives which are lined up for them. So we work with a lot of uh, these companies in Japan. We have fantastic relationships. We, we get on really well with, with uh, these system integrators. Um, we, we kind of have run some basic events and things together. We can do that without a, a reseller agreement. Excellent. Now you mentioned that you think the future of online payments in Japan is going to be more towards credit cards, less towards, less towards COD and these convenience store payments. Do you see your competitors in the market adapting? Do you see them changing their behavior because of Stripe in the market now? I expect there will be movement from the existing players to try and keep up. And I, I don't think that's necessarily going to be because of Stripe per se, but I think it's going to be in response to the movement in the market. You're right that we anticipate that cards will increase as a payment method. I think that's primarily because if you look at the types of businesses which are happening, if it's a complex platform, you need to be able to refund easily, for example, which you can't do with cash and delivery, you can't do with convenience, you can't do with bank transfers. Oh, you know? right. uh, or for example, uh, if, it's a, if it's a platform where you have you know, sellers and buyers and you're scalably achieving sellers, you could potentially have people on the platform who are somewhat fraudulent or who are not fulfilling the services to the quality that they need to be. So you need to have a dispute resolution process, which credit cards have kind of built in. There's disputes, there's chargebacks. Um, also, if you look at going across border and if you're looking at sort of selling into other countries uh, from Japan, you know, credit cards are a really great way to do that. You have the ability to do all these. Well, it's almost your only option, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
Two things you mentioned stuck out at me. So one, one, I understand that credit card fraud is still relatively rare in Japan. Credit card fraud has traditionally been very low in Japan, and I don't anticipate that credit card fraud from within Japan will increase. But I do expect a lot of Japanese companies are going to be selling more and more abroad. Um, as we approach the Olympics, this is a big theme. People talk about the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and about the inbound and about all these visitors coming to Japan and them buying things in advance of coming or continuing buying things after they've left, gone home. And I think this idea of kind of cross-border trade, where China, the, U- the US, and other countries are buying from Japan, is only going to increase. And with that, there's going to be a lot of fraud. Is it something that merchants are concerned about now in Japan? Yes. It is. Um, yes. We, we have spoken to many large Japanese companies who have started selling abroad. Uh, they've been hit by fraud and they've wrapped it up. They've, they've stopped. That was the solution. They didn't have tooling to help them figure this out. Then a lot of them would maybe first, they would have a person, they would have one person who would review every order and say, this one is above you know, $500 or this one is coming from this country. We probably don't want to take this and, and kind of go through these manually. It's not a very scalable process, though. It's not. Um, it's something you can do. And if one person is doing it, they can learn to sort of identify a lot of these signals. But what you really need is some scalable tooling which can make these decisions for you. And in Japan, or well, a lot of countries, it's something which has started to come on. But in Japan, because there traditionally hasn't been a lot of fraud, there hasn't been demand for this kind of product. So it hasn't really existed. Just recently, we announced a product called Stripe Radar, which leverages machine learning to allow businesses anywhere in the world to, I suppose, leverage the learnings that our machine learning is able to glean from our global network mm. of sellers. So we're in countries like Mexico, where fraud is a bigger problem than Japan. And if there's some new type of fraud which is happening in Mexico, the models can pick that up and immediately protect Japanese sellers okay. from those, that kind of fraud. It's interesting that the Japanese merchants are becoming more and more aware of this problem. Yeah, I think they're becoming very aware, or they're probably already very aware of the opportunity of cross-border trade. Many of them are becoming aware of the disappointment of, that can come from fraud once you start trying to do that. I think there's a big pool of companies out there who are ready to sell abroad. They are strategically planning to sell abroad and they've tried it some, at some point over the last few years and they've been bitten and they've had to block it off and they're not sure what to do next. I would imagine that this global outlook and this fraud pre- prevention would be a rather unique selling point for Stripe in Japan right now. Yeah, we get a lot of people asking us about our multi-currency and then also about fraud prevention tooling. Okay. Well, excellent. I mean, it certainly sounds like you guys are well on your way, that the first hard thing is complete and you've launched out a beta. But on a personal note, kind of looking back over the market entry over the two, last two and a half years, what would you say like the biggest mistake you made was? If you could go back and do something again, what would you change? Or did everything pretty much go as planned? <laughs> I wouldn't say that everything went as planned, but I would say that we, both me personally and the local team and Stripe, have started off with a very strong hand. I have a personal relationship with our co-founders, for example. Um, We've found some very great people to build out the local team. We have a HQ which is not doing sort of a top-down, you know, here's the strategy, go and execute sort of style. It's it's more based on decisions made by the local team. Um, We know the market best and, and that's the understanding throughout the organization. And that's true for all of our markets. That is a very enviable situation to to be in. Let's talk about that. You'd worked with Stripe and you'd known the co-founders for quite a while before you came to Japan, right? Right, yeah. We met when we were in school. (laughs) Did that relationship translate over to the Japanese team as well, where if the team on the ground said, we need these resources or we need this time, headquarters accepted that? I, I don't think there's anything so direct as... I would ask for something and, you know, we can get it because there's a personal relationship. Um, we're specifically trying not to become a, a political organization where, where things like this could happen. But I think having a high trust relationship to start off on makes things very different. I understand that any decision that's made by our exec team is, is made with, you know, everyone's thoughts in mind. I, I implicitly trust 
decisions that are made by that team. And I think the team implicitly trusts the decisions that are coming out of the, the Japan team as well. Without even going towards specific asks to each other, I think just having this basis of trust allows us to not nitpick each other or jump into you know, thinking that one knows better than the other. Um, I think we all clearly know what, who is doing what and respect that. And from what I've heard from, from some other sort of uh, people who've been running con- market entry for, for companies uh, coming into Japan, uh, it's, a very, it's very rare to have such a high quality relationship with the uh, exec team in HQ. That, that is fantastic. What else do you do to maintain that? Is there a lot of travel? Does the, do the team from headquarters come out here to Japan? The Japanese team go there? Uh, we do a bit of back and forth. Mm-hmm. So I go out to San Francisco about a week a quarter, which is not a lot, and I probably should do more, but it's always very hard to take your eye off Japan. And it's right. kind of scary. Every time I do it, I feel like I should have done that more. I should have done that earlier. I should do it more often, but... Uh, Suddenly priorities change, yeah. things get done faster. Yes, well, yeah, and you know, I think even just, just keeping that FaceTime is incredibly important. But yeah, there, there's Skype and GoToMeeting are wonderful, but there are things that only get done when you're sitting across the table from someone. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've been very fortunate to have people visit from the U.S. quite a lot. We've had a lot of our management come out here to help us and also just on vacation. And while they're in town, we can meet up with them. We can talk to them a little bit. And I think Japan is probably an easier country to, to do that from. You know, it's, it's quite interesting. And it's also relatively close to San Francisco. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit further than, than Europe. It's further than Australia. It's further than a lot of you know, Southeast Asian countries. So it's... it's great to be managing a Japan team that has that degree of independence. I think it increases the chance of success tremendously. But have there been any parts where, for example, a different sales culture has developed in Japan than in headquarters? Has a local culture also developed with this independence? I think we absolutely do have a, a local culture, but I'm also cautious of having anything too unique in the local market. I think there are certain changes or certain adaptations which are, are very important, but we have to be very careful that we stay as a sort of global company. When people join Stripe Japan, we don't talk about them joining Stripe Japan, we talk about them joining Stripe. I think the contracting entity uh, you know, who, who's employing you is, is a, a minor detail. What's an example of something that would be unique to Japan and important and something that you would want to remain as part of a global culture? One thing that we do, which I don't think we would do in other markets, when users write into us in Japan, a lot of the time they will, in their first email, say, "Can we meet you?" Uh, they'll be just a, They may not even tell us why they want to meet, um, but they'll really require that FaceTime. Uh, in other markets, it's it's more transactional, and we're not really set up to do that. There's no culture really of of, of meeting people in face so much. In in other smaller markets, and I think such as Australia or in in Europe, it's something which which can happen. But if you look at our, our larger markets like the US, it's not really something that happens all that often compared to Japan for sure. So even if it's someone who's writing in for the first time, you know, I'm sure we, we will ask them why they want to meet and we'll ask for some details, but we're very much interested in meeting people, talking to people and sort of giving them what they need to feel assured that we are a real thing, that we have people here, that we have an office. Well, that is, that is a, a difference in the Japanese sales cycle. That face-to-face meeting, even for relatively small transactions, is very important here. Yeah, and it's all about trust and it's about um, avoiding risk, as you mentioned earlier on. I think making sure that people understand that you do really exist and just for them to look into the eyes of the person on the other side and to realize that there is a, a person there and it's someone who they can trust. Japanese... Consumers and businesses are notorious for demanding high levels of support. Have you had to adapt your support team in any way to to meet that? Yes, we we definitely maintain a higher SLA in, or it's an internal SLA, but we have a very high bar for our response times and our resolution times in Japan compared to other markets. And it's something which has resonated well. In every market, we try and go beyond expectations, which is relatively easy to do, or well, I mean, it's not that easy, but you, you, you can go beyond expectations and support in, in, in other markets, you know, by responding within a day. Well, yeah, in the US, the expectations are pretty low. Right, right. And you can go beyond those. And in Japan, the expectations are very high. So it's a bit more work to kind of keep ahead of that. 
we have had plenty of users specifically come back to us and, and tell us how happy they are with how quickly we've been able to get back to them, resolve their issues. And we definitely want to maintain that. But uh, it's something which is definitely a challenge to maintain. Um, we have to keep hiring. We have to keep the quality high. And especially in a market like Japan, where uh, English levels are relatively low compared to other developed markets, I think hiring scalably for a team like this, where you're, you're looking at you know, teams and documentation coming from the US and translating that to the Japanese users and doing that without making mistakes and fast and high quality, uh, is, is going to be a challenge that we're, we're going to see. Do you see any of these Japan best practices filtering back to headquarters? Yes, uh, we are working very closely with our user ops team uh, globally, which is our, our sort of support organization is run over there. And we're also feeding back some learnings from uh, the growth side as well. Um, and those earnings wouldn't be things like, you know, you should have lots of face-to-face meetings, but uh, <laughs> I think the, the sort of the, the partnership, the relationships that we have with uh, these dev shops and, and SIRs in Japan is something which is very interesting and it's something which we can potentially scale to other countries. So it's something which we are looking at and we're sort of feeding back up. I think those are, are sort of two recent examples, but uh, we're very much about feeding these learnings through and getting them into the, the organization at large. Like most country managers, and certainly all country managers who come from headquarters, this was your first time doing this. Mm. On a personal level, what was your biggest challenge personally over the last two and a half years in pulling all this together? So my background is as an engineer. When I initially was talking to people at Stripe about joining Stripe, it was when I was finishing my postgrad in university in, in, in Japan. I had never worked in a real job as a full-time employee before, I remember specifically saying there's no way I can make any of this succeed because I would have no idea what I'm doing. I'd never done any kind of sales work. I'd never done any kind of BD. I had never looked at a legal contract in Japanese before, never mind trying to negotiate one in English. PR, marketing, you name it, I I had zero experience in it. I did go into a Japanese company. I was working at, at Cookpad for a year, which was a fantastic experience for me. But just having that one year of experience made me feel a little bit more confident about trying to do something at all in, in Stripe. But I was coming from a background of postgraduate in creative informatics, which is kind of a, uh, it was natural language processing for me, and a year as an engineer in Cookpad. And that's not exactly the right, I think, background for someone who's going to spin up one of these. So I guess almost, almost everything was challenging for you then. The engineering just... part wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> everything else uh, was uh, a very new challenge for me. Um, so I'm learning slowly but surely, but the engineering part still just about the only bit I have confidence in. Well, I mean, there's something to be said about approaching a problem with fresh eyes. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a story that our, our, our co-founders tell about how when they, they kind of had this idea for Stripe and there should be this API which allows you to send payment information and it gives you money like how you know it, it's it's pretty straightforward we have things like aws where you can hit an api and you get a server one looked at the other and said how hard could it be <laughs> <laughs> that's always a dangerous question <laughs> so i i think that naivety is a good thing but maybe best taken in measures okay what would be your best advice to someone else coming into your situation, someone else who has to bring a technology company into Japan? I think the best advice that I could give is to know your users. As I spoke about earlier on, the plan that we had changed significantly based on the input from our users. I think we were very quick to sort of throw away any assumptions that we had if we saw evidence from our users that our thinking was incorrect. Also, as I, as I mentioned earlier on, we, we don't come up with a plan run the plan very quickly, unveil it, and say, here it is, that's done. It's an a iterative approach, which mm-hmm. allows us to time to sort of get to know our users, allows us time to sort of bring in their feedback, adjust the roadmap. So, so listen to your users in Japan and, and adjust the plan as necessary. Yes, uh, which is you know, something that I was fortunate enough to have a, an organization which supported that approach. That may not be the case for everyone who's coming into Japan, but if you can convince the company back home that you don't know Japan, which is you've probably been hired because you know Japan, but you as a company don't know Japan um, and you won't know Japan until you really hit the ground, until you really start things moving and you can 
you know, learn about the market as you go forward. I've seen a lot of companies come in with assumptions and they've seemed to all have been wrong. It, it seems to be a lot of thinking like a startup again. Yes, yeah, that's a very fair thing to say. I think it's in, in a way, if you can get the organization in the right place, it's kind of like a really imbalanced startup. You have a product already, you have a team you know, somewhere, maybe in the US, uh, you presumably have customers already in other countries, uh, you have revenue streams, you have funding, and now you're bringing this to a new market. So you kind of get all the, the cool, fun parts of a startup of trying to find out what the user's needs are, trying to find a product which fit, fits that perfectly, um, but you have the bonus of having you know, a product which already exists and which can be adapted, and uh, you're not starting from scratch. I see it as kind of quite an, an, an unfair job in a, in a positive way uh, to be able to be do something which has such a high impact in the local market, which is really changing businesses in Japan. It's enabling new types of businesses, um, which is something that I always wanted to do. It's, it doesn't require you to go and try and find funding and to go and like, you know, throw away your product and start rebuilding it because of a pivot. It's, yeah, I guess it's just the fun parts. It's just that product market fit, that business development. Yep. <laughs> That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Now that you've expanded your user base and you're moving beyond the initial users who are just fans of Stripe to begin with, do you see changes in your positioning or do you see changes in the product because, because you're listening to this new larger set of users? So by listening to our initial users who are sort of inherently looking towards Silicon Valley they're inherently trying to find out what the most recent business models, the newest, most cutting-edge business models are, and, and how those are being implemented by people who are running these companies. And that feeds into our product, which is not just from Japan. This is, you know, we're working with you know, cutting-edge companies in Silicon Valley. They're asking us questions and trying to like get us to build things for them, which which we're building. And when we bring that to Japan, we're a few steps ahead of the market. I think the startup market in Japan is objectively a little bit behind the US, depending on how you measure it, it's anywhere between 40 to 75 times smaller than, the, than Silicon Valley. I think being able to bring a product to the market, you have companies in Japan who are building, for example, the next Lyft or, example, the next Instacart, and they look to the US and they say, what are these companies using? This is a business model which would work great in Japan, I know how to execute this, and they see that it's using Stripe, and then they say, okay, well, if we, bring, if we use Stripe, then we'll be able to you know, bring this technology to the Japanese market as well. Okay. So they have ideas. You know, they are doing market entry as well. They are looking at you know, bringing these business models to Japan, adapting them to the local market. And we're providing sort of a, a common platform for them to, to move on. Okay. So I guess from a headquarters point of view, and this makes a lot of sense, listening to your users isn't listening to your Japanese users or listening to your French users. It's listening to... All of your users everywhere. Yes, exactly. And the result of that, which is pretty cool, is you end up with a product which is a bit ahead of the curve. It's a few years beyond. I mean, we're with, for example, um, Relay or with Atlas, which are some products that we have. They are a little bit ahead of the curve. Atlas allows you to set up a US entity, to get a US bank account, all through a web form. And um, we do this all for you. We'll give you a Stripe account, tying these things together. So if you're an entrepreneur, in Egypt or in Cambodia or wherever you like and you need to get up and running and you can't afford a ticket to get to the US and you don't have local infrastructure, you know, we can get this up and running. This is, you know, I think quite ahead of the curve. Uh, but we're building these tools which are products which we've learned about the need for from our users who are trying to push the envelope. We build them and we quickly find that it's, there's actually quite a large market for, for these kind of products. Hmm. Um, so in Japan, even uh, one of our launch partners was ANA, um, which is you know a relatively old traditional Japanese company. It's the largest airline in Japan. You know people may not perceive it as a tech company, but we see a lot of these large companies who are trying to innovate. Even in the US, we have Walmart, we have Salesforce. You know we have traditional companies who are looking at the smaller upcoming companies and saying, well, what are they doing? How can we innovate as well? We're fortunate enough to have the relationships with those companies. So with ANA, they were doing a crowdfunding platform. In order to pull off a crowdfunding platform, they needed a piece of infrastructure that could help them with that. They knew that we powered Kickstarter, that we powered Indiegogo, and that we were available to help them in Japan as well. 
by working with these sort of companies like you know, Indiegogo, these kind of people who are really trying to do new business models or building this technology, we're able to provide that to not just these companies, but there's a, a huge market of small and large companies who need sort of innovative infrastructure. Excellent. So thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's great. Kotowork is doing something pretty cool. It's a community of Japanese language students who want to work at Japanese companies with global ambitions. Kotowork also trains them in business culture, Japanese hospitality, and a bit of global marketing. And since it's a real community, Kotowork is always there for both candidates and companies to solve cultural misunderstandings and the hundreds of other little problems that can come up when foreigners work for a Japanese company. Kotowork has a wonderful, long-term, community-based approach to making sure everything runs smoothly, and you should really check them out at kotowork.jp. Or come to their launch party on January 21st. You can find the details at the site. And we're back. I thought Stripe's decision to have the customization for the Japanese market done at headquarters was an interesting one. This is normally a recipe for disaster. But I think there's a twofold reason that Stripe pulled it off. First, the team at HQ was dedicated to developing localization and market specific functions. They were not on loan from the so called more important core development team. These types of integrations were their first priority, and the usual struggle for resources was avoided. Second, in Daniel, Stripe had a highly technical, thoroughly bilingual engineer to coordinate their efforts. I'm not sure either Daniel or Stripe really appreciate how unusual that is here in Japan. Now, one of the most interesting things about Stripe's Japan market entry strategy was the decision not to support popular payment methods like COD and convenience store payments. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they were not just rationalizing a decision not to do a lot of development work that would only apply to the Japanese market, because Daniel made a very good point during the interview. E commerce transactions are becoming more and more complex. In fact, the extent to which online business models can support refunds and escrow and ongoing payments and digital goods and a whole host of other activities mean that they are far more flexible than cash and certainly more flexible than COD or many of Japan's touch-based e-commerce solutions. I think Stripe's bet that these new business models will drive e-commerce in the future is a good one. Traditionally, commerce has been mainly the simple exchange of cash for goods, but the internet and flexible payment systems like Stripe open up the field to a far more complex and innovative set of transactions, and hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of them in years to come. If you've got a question about Stripe or their market entry into Japan, Daniel and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 066 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Daniel and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And hey, I know you've been meaning to do this for a while now, but when you get the chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can support the show and help us get the word out. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.